0: if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me back to Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and I wanted to read a quotation to you it's from volume 9 of the testimonies on page 266 and 267 volume 9, page 266 and 267 in which it says the 5th chapter of Revelation needs to be closely studied it is of great importance to those who shall act a part in the work of God for these last days, so here we have divine counsel particularly on this chapter, chapter 5 of Revelation, she continues to say, those who have permitted their minds to become be clouded in regard to what constitutes sin are fearfully deceived is that a danger for each one of us to become beclouded or confused as to what constitutes sin. Unless they make a decided change, they will be founting wanting when God pronounces judgment upon the children of men. They have transgressed the law, broken the everlasting covenant, and they will receive according to their works. Now it's just interesting to me in light of what we were studying this morning about Revelation 4 and 5, and my suggestion that we need to look at the first part here this fountainhead of the book of revelation as introducing for us the beginning of the day of atonement the beginning of the investigative judgment and this counsel in volume five excuse me volume nine of the testimonies where she encourages us to study this chapter carefully and then connects it with the last days and connects it with the time of the judgment now that quotation by itself wouldn't conclude that but it's certainly an interesting support in that direction. Whatever, we clearly need to study the chapter carefully because it does have a tremendous amount of meaning for us. Uh, Something else I'd like to say is earlier today when we were talking about chapter four and five and we talked about the four living creatures and we talked about the 24 elders, uh, there's a quotation from the book Story of Redemption which I found very interesting. Story of Redemption, page 184. And this is what it says Four heavenly angels always accompanied the Ark of God in all its journeyings to guard it from all danger and to fulfill any mission required of them in connection with the Ark. Now that intrigued me. So here on earth, when the Ark, wherever the Ark went, of course we know on top of the Ark there were two angels. But here in Story of Redemption, Ellen White says wherever the ark went on earth, there were four heavenly angels surrounding it. And of course, in heaven, we see these four living creatures, which are cherubim. If we read Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10 and the four living creatures in the book of Ezekiel, we make a very close connection between the living creatures in Revelation and in the book of Ezekiel as being cherubim, angelic beings. And so here's this other connection. One other thing that I just wanted to share as well. This morning, when I drew my little diagram of the concentric circles that we see in the sanctuary, again, in the image here in Revelation 4 and 5, it starts with the throne in the center, and then there's the rainbow of promise around it, and that rainbow is to encourage us. When we're discouraged, we need enlightenment, we need guidance. That's there to encourage us. And then around that, the four living creatures. And then, of course, the 24 elders. And ultimately, all the host of the angelic beings. And then, finally, a larger circle that includes every created being. And as we were talking about that, and as we were discussing the imagery here of the throne, um, It's often thought that in the earthly sanctuary, let me just diagram that for us, you're familiar of course, with the earthly courtyard. And in the earthly courtyard, which was a rectangle, then we had the sanctuary proper, which was also a rectangle and then it was divided into a rectangle and a square and the as you would come into the sanctuary familiar with this of course there was the altar of burnt offering and there was a laver and then when you walked into the first apartment what did we find there? well there was a candlestick right? seven branch candlestick and the altar of incense which we see in Revelation 4 the seven-branch candlestick, at least. And then in chapter 8, we see the altar of incense in the book of Revelation. And then we see a throne. Now, in my description, there is no, or in the book of Revelation, there seems to be one article of furniture missing. And what is it? Table of, table. The table. Table of showbread, which, of course, would be over here opposite the lampstand. Now, it's interesting about the table of showbread. Uh, In its construction, it had a border around it. It actually had two borders around it. And in the King James, it describes those borders as crowns. And so some individuals, Mervyn Maxwell and others, individuals that I highly respect, very godly individuals, have suggested the idea that the table of showbread functions as an illustration of God's throne and that what you're seeing in Revelation 4 is not the throne of God with the ark, but the table of showbread. Now, the weakness with that, of course, is Ellen White's very clear, and she says that you're going to see the emerald around the throne, and remember that quote from this morning, beneath that rainbow is what? Is the mercy seat in the ark. So she's very clear that the Throne that has a rainbow around it is the Ark. Every place the throne and the rainbow is mentioned together in Ellen White's writings, it draws us to the Ark, which would be here, not, of course, the Table of Showbread. But some individuals also say um, there was two borders around it, and King James calls them crowns. Of course, the Ark, uh, the Altar of Incense, had a border around it or a crown, and. There were two piles of bread on the table of showbread. And some believers suggest that that represents the Father and the Son sitting together on the throne. The difficulty with that, from my perspective, is there's nowhere in Scripture that it says that. There's absolutely nothing in Scripture that indicates that the table of showbread functions as a throne. And there's nothing in the writings of Ellen White that indicate that the table of showbread functions as a throne. Now, there is one reference in scripture that might kind of maybe think about that. Now, as you come into the sanctuary, of course, as you come into the sanctuary, um, you're facing, you're going West. west and east. And this, of course, would be south. And this would be north. So the table of showbread is on the northern side of the sanctuary. So, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 14. Sorry, Isaiah. Well, it's Jeremiah, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14. A chapter in which Isaiah has this poem, and almost like a photograph that has a double exposure in it that you can see two different things. He uses the king here, king of Babylon, as a image of Lucifer's great... as the real king of Babylon who wants to take over heaven. And in verse 12 of Isaiah 14, it says, familiar verses, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, You who have weakened the nations. Verse 13. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise raise my what? My throne above the stars of God. Okay, so Satan has a throne. That's what we're seeing in the book of Revelation. That's what we said last night. That the throne in Revelation is contested territory. Satan has a throne, and he wants to put his throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly, and what does the last part of verse 13 say? On the what? On the sides of the north. And so in Isaiah chapter 13, here it's talking about Satan wanting to put his throne on the sides of the north. And then in verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And so some expositors, some brothers and sisters in the Adventist church, will say that the table here is a representation of the throne. And the fact that this table is on the northern part of the sanctuary... And the fact that Isaiah wants to put his throne, he wants to sit where? Satan wants to I'm sorry, Satan, sorry, thank you. Satan wants to sit where? On the sides of the north. That means that Satan is wanting to usurp God's presence at this place. That's fairly logical. There's just a major problem with it. The Hebrew word translated sides of the north doesn't mean side like we would say the side of a building. It actually has the sense of a corner or an apex of. So the New American Standard translates it, in the recesses, the deepest parts of the north. Now, in the scriptures, the north is a symbol for God's presence. That's where God dwells, in the north. And notice carefully what's happening here. If we read Isaiah chapter 12, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 and 13, carefully, there's a momentum, right? Notice what Satan is saying in his heart. I will do what? What's the first thing? What's that word? I will ascend. That's a movement. And what's the movement? Upward. The second thing he says is, I will exalt. That's a movement, right? And the movement is? Higher, Exactly right. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the assembly in the recesses in the farthest point of the north. He's wanting to go up. I will, verse 14, do what? Ascend, Ascend again. Notice the imagery here. It's up, up. Up, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. Verse 15, nevertheless, what's going to happen? You're going to be cast down. And so the illustration in Isaiah chapter 14 is not referring to him sitting on the sides of the sanctuary. Very clearly, the passage is telling us that he is wanting to exalt himself up and up and up, taking God's place. But what happens to him? He's get cast, he is cast down. And you know, it's interesting, this is really the principle of the gospel. Or the this is, I should say, this is the antithesis to the gospel. This is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is continually going down. And we think of Peter and Jesus when Jesus revealed himself as the son of God and Peter grabbed him and and told Jesus, you know, no, you're not going to go to the cross because Peter was fighting against the principle of the cross which is self-denial and self-sacrifice. And from the highest being in the universe, God, to the lowest being in the universe, us or whoever, the principle of heaven is self-sacrifice. And here in the passage in Isaiah we're seeing something else. We're seeing self-exaltation but because we exalt ourselves what happens? we get cast down mm-hmm. Lucifer got cast down and the same thing would happen to anyone that follows Lucifer's trajectory Luther's path, Lucifer's path so I just share this because it came up in a conversation that uh, it's true in the book of Revelation there is no mention of the table of showbread why? I have no idea uh, but it's not there but the throne that's brought out in Revelation is the Ark, is a representation of the Ark. The throne on which is the mercy seat and around which is the emerald rainbow and to which we can go when we have problems. And we should go. All right, let's go back to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Is that, was that clear to everybody? Amen. So, by the way, sorry, one more thing. Uh, I get a little distracted. Most of the illustrations we have seen of the sanctuary are incorrect. And I didn't draw this exactly right, but I was trying to do. The outer court in the sanctuary was a rectangle, and it was divided into two squares. The entrance into the holy place was right at the center point of this rectangle. And if you were to divide the two squares, in other words, if you were to find the geographic center of the two squares, I did this incorrectly over here, but if you were to find the geographic center of the two squares, they would be the altar of burnt offering and the Ark of the Covenant. That was the two centers, physical centers, of the two most important parts of the sanctuary. That teaches us a very important truth. Perpetual sacrifice and continual intercession. And Satan hates those two truths. That we have an atoning sacrifice and we have an ongoing intercessor. And everything depends, in Satan's mind, with diverting our attention from these two truths. We have a sacrifice and we have a priest who's interceding for us. And that's what Revelation wants to reveal to us as well. That we have a sacrifice and we have an ongoing priest. And that's the foundation for our confidence in the investigative judgment. That's, our, that's what's going to enable God's people to stand during a time of trouble. Because we know our faith is anchored that we have a sacrifice to cover for our sins and we have somebody pleading for us. You know, nothing in our hand are, we bring, right? It's always going to be focused on these two areas. So it's interesting as we think back to the sanctuary how God constructed that for us. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And I said this evening I wanted to do some comparisons between chapter 4 and 5 and chapter 12 and 13. Both of these chapters are units, literary units. They they really go together. It's very clear that chapter 4 runs seamlessly into chapter 5. And it's also... Well, maybe it's not so clear that chapter 12 and 13 move one into another as well. And so, what I want to do is, first of all, show you how chapter 12 and 13 link together, and then highlight some comparisons between the two chapters. So, let's turn to chapter 12. And if I say something that's perplexing, please don't hesitate to raise your hand or ask me a question. Uh, Revelation 12 is almost like a, well, Revelation eleven nineteen, 19, and then into Revelation 12, is almost like a new beginning in the book. It's almost like a fresh start. And I, I believe the Holy Spirit inspired John, and as he was writing the book of Revelation, he thought about it this way to impress our minds in the importance of the the great controversy which is clearly brought out in Revelation 12. So Revelation 12 is broken into three little sections. You have the image of the woman and the dragon and her child, which takes us from verses 1 through to verse 6 where the woman is about to give birth and then the dragon is there ready to destroy the child and the child's born and the child goes up to God's throne and then the dragon persecutes the woman which represents the church. Then in verses 7 through 13, 7 through 12 rather, you have a picture of the war in heaven and then in verses 13 to the end of the chapter, verse 17, you have Satan persecuting the church again. So you have Satan persecuting the church, trying to destroy Christ, then the war in heaven, and then Satan trying to destroy the church again. At the end of chapter 12, let's read here verse 17. It says, so the dragon was enraged with the woman. And who's the woman? The The church. And he went off to make war with who? the remnant of her seed, the rest of her children at the end of time, and then they're described in two ways. What are those two ways? They keep the commandments of God, and they have what? Testimony of Jesus. And this is a clear descriptive mark for us uh, to help us identify the people of God in the last days. I would argue this is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus which is the prophetic gift manifested through Ellen White in her life and ministry but notice carefully what it says the dragon is enraged with the woman and then he does something what does he do? what does your translation say? do you have the King James? someone read that for me please what does it say? He went to make war. So the, the original language is a little stronger than that. It's brought out in the New American Standard. It says he went off to make war. It's like, if you could visualize it, he is angry at the woman. He wants to destroy the woman, who's described here. And then he goes off to make war. And he is going to get allies. And then in Revelation 13:1 from uh, different manuscripts than the King James has used. Instead of John standing on the seashore, it's the dragon standing there, as I read this morning. The New American Standard in verse 1 of chapter 13 says, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. So the picture is, if you're going to try to visualize it in our minds, if we can try to imagine it and remember uh, when John wrote the book of Revelation, they wouldn't have been reading it, they would have been hearing it, trying to picture it in their view, trying to get it in your mind's eye. Satan is going off to make war and he comes to the seashore and he's there and he's trying to call forth his two associates, his two allies. And who are his allies? Well, there's the beast, first beast, which comes up out of the sea, right? And then there's the second beast, which comes up out of Out of the land. So what we see here in Revelation is is a unity of three entities. The dragon. And what role does the dragon play? He takes the place of God. And then we have the beast. And we'll see momentarily how he is a counterfeit of Christ. And then we have the second beast that comes up out of the earth, who is also called the false prophet. He brings fire down from heaven in Revelation 13. Kind of counterfeit of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so John very skillfully is trying to get to our minds that there is an opposite, counterfeit godhead. The dragon reflecting the father's place. Jesus, the first beast, a counterfeit of Christ, and then the land beast, a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Now I understand and I believe that the first beast, to be very clear, has a historic application. What is that historic application? It represents the papacy. The book of Daniel clearly tells us that beasts, Daniel 7.17, Daniel 7.23, that beasts represent kingdoms and powers. They have historic meaning. Let's not forget that. The second beast is a representation of the United States. That's very clear. But let's not also forget that the book of Revelation has been written and people have been reading it for centuries before the United States was even formed. And so while there is this historic level that we need to understand, there's also the message that John is trying to tell us about the great controversy. And that is that, just as in Revelation chapter 4, there's God, who sits on the throne, and then there's, uh, in Revelation 5, there's Jesus, we'll come to that momentarily, who comes to the Father, And receives things from him. And then there's the Holy Spirit in Revelation 5. So you have a counterfeit in Revelation 12 and 13. Now let's kind of flesh these out a little bit. I hope I didn't confuse you too much in that. So let's look at some of these parallels. Particularly between the first beast and Jesus Christ. And let me just say this, in terms of studying the Bible with people, I've I've shared this with people before I've tried to identify this and say, okay, this is the papacy, which I believe it is historically. I try to pull the themes out of it and say, okay, what's this really trying to tell us? This beast power, whatever it is, this system, we can clearly see from John's writing is an entire counterfeit of Christ and the way of salvation and then we can look to history and say well what systems fit that and it's undeniable that the system of Roman Catholicism fits that very carefully clearly of course that does not mean we're talking about individual Catholics just like if we were to criticize the United States for slavery or racism we're not condemning every single member of the United States so let's look at a couple of comparisons Okay. so first of all In uh, Revelation chapter 13, the beast that comes up out of the sea is described, first of all, as having ten horns and seven heads. The dragon in Revelation chapter 12 also has seven horns and ten heads. So the beast looks like the dragon in the way it's described. They both have seven horns and ten heads and of course Jesus told us in the gospel of John John chapter 14 and verse 7 where he says to Philip Philip if you have seen me you have seen who? you have seen the father so just as Christ is a reflection of the father so the beast is a reflection of the dragon it's a very heavy thought really to think about but again we're talking about a system and The system, of course, is that of self-exaltation. Now, we also need to be careful, again, as I said last night, that in every act of life, you and I are showing one of two antagonistic powers. And our danger, Seventh-day Adventists, is that we kind of read this, oh, well, this is the papal system. The enemy is out there. That's not true, or it's partially true. The enemy is in here. It's my heart. It's your heart and we each need to be converted we each need to be aware of the desire of self exaltation in our own lives so the beast represents or looks like the dragon on his horns were 10 what 10 what crowns. 10 crowns now remember the 24 elders they also wear crowns however the crowns the 24 elders wear are stephanos their crowns of victory Kind of like a laurel wreath. The crown here is a diadem. The only individuals that wear diadems in the book of Revelation are Jesus, the dragon, and the beast. The elders and other individuals that wear crowns, the crown of life that's given to us as victors, that's a Stephanos. That's a different crown. The only ones that wear diadems in the book of Revelation is Jesus and he wears many crowns Revelation 19 and the dragon and the beast. Counterfeit, counterfeit. Um, something else here we see <clears throat> in, in verse 2, a little bit later on in the last part of verse 2, we read this already, the dragon gives the beast his power, his throne, and what else? Great authority. What did Jesus say just before he ascended into heaven? Matthew chapter twenty-eight. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. So just as Jesus received authority from his father, the dragon is the one that gives authority to the beast. Counterfeit again. Yeah? And then perhaps the most powerful counter image, and I like that expression in here in this section, is in verse three. I saw one of his heads as if. It had been what? Wounded Wounded, how? Wounded to death. Now there's one other place in the book of Revelation where that same Greek expression is used in the exact same form. And it's back in Revelation chapter 5. Let's just turn there momentarily. Revelation 5. In verse 6. John sees between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, how? As if slain. As if slain. Now, in the original language, the word for slain in Revelation 5-6 and the word for wounded to death in Revelation thirteen three. that's the exact same word in the exact same way. So there's a very close tie here. John sees the lamb and he looks as though he has been slaughtered, put to death. When he sees the beast, the beast has been slaughtered, put to death. So both of them receive these wounds that bring death. But what else is unique about both of them? What? both resurrected. They're both resurrected. They're both healed. The lamb is is standing there, so obviously there's a resurrection, and his wound, the beast's wound that is in Revelation 13, is healed as well. So this is a counterfeit death and resurrection. Now again, it has a historic connotation to it in 1798, but what's really important for us is that we see what John is doing here. He's the way he's written the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5 are a counterweight to chapters 12 and 13, which talk about the great controversy. In chapter 4 and 5, we see the true one we should worship. We see the true throne. We see the one whom we should give honor and worship to, who was slain. In chapter 13, we see the counterfeit. Satan is there and he has a throne and he wants his throne to be center. And then there's a counterfeit Image of Christ, which is this beast here. Now continue here in Revelation 13, back to Revelation 13, in verse 3. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. In other words, there is acclamation over the attributes of the beast, and the whole world gives praise and acclamation to the beast. In Revelation chapter 5, we read it earlier this morning, there's a song that everybody sings to the Lamb, right? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power and blessing. So there's an acclamation that comes to the Lamb in Revelation 5, which is countered in Revelation 13. One more point here. Verse 4 and they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying who is like the beast who is able to wage war with him what does this say? that if individuals worship the beast who are they ultimately worshiping? Now, if they worship the beast who are they ultimately worshiping? they're worshiping Satan or they're worshiping the dragon And really, when we give adoration and worship to Christ, who are we actually worshiping? We're worshiping the Father. So we see this all the way through. And um, in Revelation 5, again, there are the seven spirits. There's the Holy Spirit which is sent out to the earth. And in the second half of Revelation 13, there is the beast that comes up out of the earth. As I said, calls fire down from heaven. Later in the book of Revelation, he is called the false prophet. This is a counterfeit working of the Holy Spirit. So here you see this counterweight. Chapter 4 and 5, we see the true. Chapter 12 and 13, we see the counterfeit. One more thing I want to bring out on this, and then I want to kind of shift back. Let's turn back to Revelation chapter 14. Excuse me. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4. In describing the living creatures... They are full of eyes around and within. Now, that's a really important point. Uh, Earlier today, we were talking with somebody, I think at breakfast, I guess it was, and somebody said, well, you know, is this literal or is that literal? And uh, I, I teach a class on Revelation at Southern Prophetic Studies, and I tell my students repeatedly until they're annoyed with the statement, but I'll tell you the statement as well. In Revelation, things do not mean what they say. They mean what they mean okay they do not mean what they say they mean what they mean Now, the furrowed brow that's good you're thinking well what does that mean so in revelation chapter four when the four living creatures are covered with eyes and within we need not think that the living creatures in heaven actually have eyes all over their body that's not john's point i don't think it's john's point anyway Let me give you an easier example. When it describes the lamb as slain, the lamb in Revelation 5 has seven horns um, and, you know, eyes as well, seven eyes. Do we think Jesus looks like that? Of course not. It's an illustration to tell us something. What does it mean? So in Revelation, things don't mean what they say. They mean what they mean. So what does it mean that these four living creatures are full of eyes all around, in front and in back and within? Well, what do you use eyes for? What? To see. To see, to see, everything. To see everything all over the place. Yeah. What are they looking at? Who are they looking at? Everyone and everything. Everyone and everything where are they? Around the They're around the throne. and. From my understanding, these eyes, they're seeing everything. Whose actions are they watching? They're watching God's actions. Because God's been accused in a great controversy. Is God really just? Is God really worthy of worship? Is His plan of self-denial and self-sacrifice, is His call for each one of us to bear the cross, is that really the best plan for the universe? Or is Satan's plan the best? And God is completely transparent. Watch me every moment of every day, day and night. A little bit like Daniel. You could search me. It's okay. Everything's all right. That's very different than our governments, isn't it? Our governments are not like that. Satan is not like that. Satan uses lies, and he uses deception, and he's trying to cover things up. But Revelation is a revealing. It's an opening. God's saying, come, you know, inspect the books. Watch everything I'm doing. So their eyes around and within. Um, And day and night, back to Revelation chapter 4 in verse 8. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. That's an expression reserved in the book of Revelation exclusively for God the Father. The one who is and who was and who is to come. Satan has a similar counterfeit expression to that in chapter 17. But what I really want to point out to you is how often are these four living creatures singing or saying this song? All the time. time. What does it say? What's the expression? Day and night. night. That's an interesting expression. Happens two other places in the book of Revelation. Let's look at one of the most significant ones, Revelation chapter 12. In verse 10. Revelation 12 and verse 10. Now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God, what? Day and night. So on one hand, you have in the book of Revelation, Satan accusing God's people before God. And we know from studying the book of Job that when Satan accuses God's people, who is he really accusing? He's accusing God. We know that from the book of Job. You know, have you made a hedge around Job? Satan asks. He's really accusing God. And so Satan, day and night, ceaselessly, is accusing God's people, and thereby accusing God. On the other hand, the four living creatures are day and night doing what? Praising God. God. Holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. A really interesting uh, point there as well. We think about the great controversy. And and so here's this image, back and forth, counterfeit. Revelation 4 and 5, Revelation 12 and 13, they're, they're Opposite mirrors, telling a different story, but following the same thread to the story. You have one on the throne. He's open. He's transparent. You have the lamb that was slain. You have the sevenfold spirit. And you have this exalted worship in Revelation 4 and 5. Chapters 12 and 13, you have the dragon who wants to take God's place on the throne. He wants to be worshiped. He goes off to get his two associates the beast that comes up out of the sea, which is a false representation of Christ, and the other beast that he calls from the earth, the false representation of the Holy Spirit. And he hopes by his allies to overthrow the worship of God. He is a failure the dragon, that is. Amen. Ultimately, he completely comes to his end. The system that he is trying to build of self-exaltation cannot keep itself up. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. We already looked at the beginning of um, we saw how, there's the, how God is represented in Revelation 5 as having a book in his hand. That book is sealed up with seven seals written inside and out. It's a book of lamentation, of woe. It's a representation of the destiny of humanity. It's a book that is involved in the judgment. John weeps because no one is able to open the book. And one of the elders says, don't cry, stop weeping. Somebody has been found. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. These are kingly images, right? Lion from the tribe of Judah. That's a kingly image. The root of David. Those are Old Testament images for kingly power. And then John looks and he turns to see this king. And who does he see? Verse 6. The lamb slain. What is John trying to communicate with us, to us? What is he trying to communicate about? In the book of Revelation, there's a contest over which throne will rule. There's a question, is God really fit to rule? What is Revelation's answer to that question? The king is self-sacrificing. Yeah. More than anything, anyone, or anything. The king is the most self-sacrificing being in the universe. And his kingdom runs on self-sacrifice. And this is foundational for us to understand the whole book of Revelation. Revelation talks about judgment and destruction and power, and we misinterpret it if we don't understand here in chapter four and five that John is laying the foundation for us. There's a great controversy there's accusations, but the heavenly beings are watching God. And how does God rule? God rules through self-sacrifice. Let me read a couple of quotations to you. These are probably familiar to you, but they bear repeating. The first one is from the book Desire of Ages, page 37. And uh, this is just before the incarnation. It's really interesting to think about. Just before the incarnation, the unfallen worlds were expecting God to destroy this earth. Notice what she says here. With intense interest, the unfallen worlds had watched to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. And if God should do this, Satan was ready to carry out his plan for securing to himself the allegiance of heavenly beings. Interesting. Now where did the controversy start? It's started in the divine council in heaven, where Satan began to insinuate questions about God that God's unfair. God, to God doesn't rule justly. God doesn't rule with mercy. God really is not self-sacrificing. God really is selfish. Foundational questions in the great controversy. And so if God had destroyed the earth, Satan would have then secured the allegiance of the rest of the universe and say, see, this is just what I told you. At the very crisis... At the what? The very crisis... When Satan excuse me, Satan seemed about to triumph, the Son of God came with the embassage of divine grace. The deity was glorified by pouring upon the world a flood of healing grace that was never to be obstructed or withdrawn till the plan of salvation should be fulfilled. In the time of crisis when everybody's looking for Satan to win and to God to destroy the world, what does God do? He pours grace upon the world in the gift of his son. He exemplifies the principle of his kingdom, which is self-sacrifice. Just imagine if you were there, and and you're one of the angelic beings, and you have no idea what's coming, and you're part of the divine council, you know, maybe one of the 24 elders, if they were angelic beings. Certainly there are other angelicos there. And, and all the unfallen worlds, everybody's like, God, you have to do something about this planet Earth. It's becoming more contaminated. I wonder what they're thinking now. Um, but it's becoming more contaminated and more contaminated. And, and, and something has to happen. And they're waiting. They're waiting. For God to destroy the world. And Satan is waiting. Yes, you know, I'm, this is my chance. And then God sends his son to be born into this world. And all the unfallen worlds are like, what? Then they watch the life of Christ unfold. They see him grow, and they see the temptations, and they see his victory. And they see him yielding his life on the cross. And at that point, they become totally convinced that God is right. And from that point on, Satan doesn't have an ear in the unfallen worlds. Nothing. Clearly, it's done. It's very clear. It's clear who Satan is, it's clear who God is. Totally clear. Through the gift of grace revealed at the cross. It just what it was amazing. But that flood of grace continues to flow into this world today. Continuing, different, different uh quotation. This is from Review and Herald. July 17, 1900. A crisis had arrived in the government of God. The earth was filled with transgression. The heavenly intelligences, intelligences were prepared for a manifestation of almighty power. Every move was walked with intense anxiety. The exercise of justice was expected. So, again, same period of time. Different quotation. Signs of the Times, August 27, 1902. All heaven waited the bidding of their commander to pour out the vials of wrath. One word from him, one sign, and the world would have been destroyed. Listen carefully. The world's unfallen would have said, Amen. You are righteous, O God, because you have exterminated rebellion. Imagine that if God had destroyed this world, the rest of the universe would have said hallelujah, amen you did the right thing but God really does the right thing what does he do? sends his son, he gives self-sacrifice, self-denial principle, the kingdom of heaven principle of eternal life there is going to come a time when the great controversy is going to come to a close where every person is going to make a decision on what side in the controversy they are in Every person's going to make a decision. I'm either going to follow the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. I'm going to be on their side. I'm going to hold on to this world. Or they're going to say, no, I'm going to live a life of self-sacrifice. I'm going to live a life of self-denial. I'm going to live a life of looking how to benefit other people. God might have sent his son to condemn the world, but he sent him to save No words can describe the effect of this movement on the heavenly angels. With wonder and admiration, they could only exclaim, Herein is love. So in the book of great... In the book of Revelation, when we read through it, there are these scenes throughout the book of Revelation in which the 24 elders and the living creatures, they're singing songs. They're part of this divine council. They are convinced that God is worthy of worship because they have seen it. But as we read through Revelation, we find out that God is waiting for us to be convinced that He's worthy of worship. And finally, that happens. Revelation 19 there's a bride that's ready for the wedding that's what we're going to look at tomorrow morning how Revelation 4 and 5 relate to Revelation chapter 19 so here we are the big picture of Revelation the great controversy who are we going to worship God's throne is under attack but what does God do? He opens it up for everybody to look at. The four living creatures have eyes all over the place. Everyone's invited to look at what's taking place here in God's, the administration of God's government. And how does God rule? Through self-sacrifice, self-denial. In other words, in Revelation, God takes the word power and he flips the meaning of the word power upside down. We think of power as authority and strength and might and the ability to get what you want. But God inverts the word power in the book of Revelation and shows us that true power is self-sacrifice, is giving. That's where real strength comes from. May that picture draw our hearts that we, with the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the rest of the unfallen worlds, we too may say with wonder and admiration, herein is love this is the one that i want to serve may that love transform our hearts you know we we live in a world that's ever present i don't know if you've noticed that uh as you're aware as mentioned this morning and you're very aware that a couple of weeks ago i was misdiagnosed with having intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma and you know i was given about six months to live you know when you think you only have six months to live your perspective on things changes. Things that irritated me didn't irritate me so much. It's like, "Eh, it's really not that big of a deal. Things I was consumed with became so unimportant. And other things became really important. I mean, I really needed to clean my garage. Um, That is serious. I'm totally serious. That became like this primary thing. You know, I'm going to die in six months. I need to clean the garage for my wife. Um, And, and, and then, I'm okay now, so I'm, I don't think I'm going to die in six months anyway. None of us know the future. I'm not planning on it. But you know, that garage could stay dirty for a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> the perspective changes so quickly in this world. We really need the grace of God to see things the way God sees them mm-hmm. and, and to really view what's really important in this world. Not only happens as we let God speak to our hearts, as we listen to his voice, as we spend time contemplating his word in nature, thinking about the things he has put before us. So let's kneel together as we close tonight and thank God for his plan of salvation. Father in heaven, thank you again for showing us how you rule the universe through surrender, through sacrifice. Thank you that in times of crisis, your method of operation, your uh, way of resolving the crisis is through giving. You gave yourself in the gift of your son. You gave all heaven in the gift of your son. Father, may that gift work its way into our lives and thoughts, transforming us from the inside out that we too with the heavenly agencies might also say, herein is love. May we be convinced that you are worthy of worship. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.